Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 9th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Northern Ireland Protocol was centre stage in Brussels yesterday. It is perfectly reasonable to look for ways to improve the operation of the protocol. But unfortunately, what we have seen are bad faith efforts to undermine a treaty freely entered into. The Taoiseach Micheál Martin told MEPs that the protocol could be made to work to the satisfaction of unionists. If there is a political will to find them. But that requires partnership. It requires the United Kingdom government to engage with good faith, seriousness and commitment. Unilateral action to set aside a solemn agreement would be deeply damaging. It would mark a historic low point, signalling a disregard for essential principles of laws which are the foundation of international relations. And that low point could have a significant impact. Michal Martin explained why the stakes are so high. Without a spirit of partnership, there would have been no peace process in Northern Ireland. Without trust, without engagement without a willingness to see things from the point of view of others, there would have been no Good Friday Agreement, no quarter century of peace in Northern Ireland in which young people have been able to grow and to flourish as themselves. The deal the British signed up to is still not complete with the Vice President of the EU Commission heading up the European negotiating team. What I would say is that uh, Maris Sefcovich, if there was a Nobel Peace Prize for patience, uh, he would win it. Um, hands down. The Taoiseach highlighted Europe's goodwill in negotiating how the protocol will operate. Unionist politicians have raised legitimate questions, you know, issues around the operation of the protocol. And we believe we can, the European Union that is, believes that it can resolve these issues. But the fundamental question remains as to what the British government's ultimate position is. And that's why I referred in my opening address to the absence of political will. I just simply do not detect a sustained political will on behalf of the UK government to settle this and resolve this, because it without question can be resolved. But if it is not resolved, Taoiseach Martin is concerned about the deal that brought peace to this island 24 years ago. The more fundamental concern I have is on that overall stability of the architecture of the Good Friday Agreement and the spirit that informs that. I said earlier, you know, that 
it took a long, a lot of work from a lot of people to uh, get the Good Friday Agreement over the line. Uh, and therefore, we should all be very, very careful in doing anything that could undermine that. And I feel the UK government uh, is not giving due consideration to the totality of what's involved in the Good Friday Agreement. Just burnt about a strong speech from uh, the Taoiseach Micheál Martin uh, to uh, the European Parliament in Brussels uh, yesterday. Let's speak to Karen Coleman, editor of Europarl Radio, which reports from the European Parliament uh, for Irish radio stations. Good morning to you, Karen, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You would get the impression, listening to the Taoiseach, uh, that this was uh, a fait accompli because he was as strong as he was in the comments that he made yesterday, but it seems it's been delayed overnight uh, until next week. Uh, yes, this is uh, some of the breaking news, but I think this was one of the things after the confidence vote um, last week in the UK that we might actually see maybe a delay in this and there's talk about maybe some um, divisions within the British Cabinet and what exactly they should do with this bill that they're proposing, which would disapply, in in the words of Mara Shevkovich, aspects of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, I don't know whether the delay has anything to do with the Taoiseach speech yesterday. Um, I don't know whether the British um, do act when they have very strong signals coming either from Dublin or Brussels because Micheál Martin has been, you know, reiterated yesterday the, the constant line that has been coming from the EU that there can't be a renegotiation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, that the um, essence and the importance of the Good Friday Agreement are absolutely paramount. Peace in Northern Ireland is so crucial. So he wasn't necessarily saying anything new, but I think what was very apparent yesterday and, and certainly it struck me was the strength of his words about the protocol and about, you know, again, warning about unilateral action just not being acceptable, you know, saying, as as we heard there in that clip, uh, Michael, that it would mark a historic low point and signalling a disregard for the essential principles of law um, and that it wouldn't be of use, of benefit to absolutely anyone. Um, He was very strong Mm. on that. And I think, you know, the House, the Parliament, the Chamber, the MEPs were impressed by that. Mm, and there was uh, unwavering support, uh, I think, has become a turn of phrase uh, because uh, we talk uh, about uh, Europe and if uh, they support the Irish position in this, but it has been unwavering and uh, there was great support for those strong comments yesterday. And I think the strength of those comments are, are probably signified in uh, the response from Geoffrey Donaldson, who's uh, described uh, the Irish government as being tone deaf. It would seem a fair comment given the gap between the two sides. Well, this is the problem. I mean, this is the key problem here to trying to get a resolution to the outstanding issues to do with the protocol. There are, you know, people like Jeffrey Donaldson and others within uh, unionist communities are very unhappy with the with certain aspects of it. And the, what Michal Martin was saying yesterday, which again, Shevkovich, <clears throat> excuse me, and the commission negotiating team would say, is that solutions can be found that they, you know, are bending over backwards to try and facilitate the issues that are causing trouble for businesses and others in Northern Ireland and that if everybody comes to the table and continues to negotiate, they'll get there. Now, obviously, there are people in Northern Ireland who just don't 
believe that is the case, that it isn't possible to be able to resolve these issues unless their own views of how they should be implemented will be brought into the protocol. But that would require then a a breach, a disapplication of aspects of the Northern Ireland Protocol. We're going round and round and round here in circles Mm. um, and it's hard to see how it's going to be resolved um, and, and, you know, and especially if the British government introduce their own bill that will disapply aspects of the protocol, that is going to cause serious problems and problems for the trade agreement, problems for relations, obviously, which are already poor um, between the British government and Brussels and Dublin. Um, and I, I don't know. I really don't know you know, does it mean really ultimately the British are going to have to back down or will the EU have to really look and see how much can they stretch the legality of the protocol to enable a bending of the rules without breaching the integrity of the legal aspects of the protocol? Mm. It's hard to see how it's going to be resolved or will Boris Johnson come up against significant pressure that's you know, going to stop him from pushing through that bill. But we also know he's coming up uh, also against pressure from the Brexiteers who want to push it as hard as they can. Mm. Uh, And he spoke uh, about good faith, seriousness, commitment, partnership, trust, engagement, willingness uh, and goodwill uh, and made a comparison to how the Good Friday Agreement was reached and paid tribute to the Nobel Peace Prize winners, David Trimble, and more significantly, of course, John Hume. Yes, because his references to John Hume were also part of the speech. They obviously didn't get picked up as much yesterday because of the strength of what he had said about the protocol. That was kind of the key uh, issue and of course, also he talked about Ukraine and 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 said he strongly supported Ukrainian membership, as well its application of membership of the EU on the John Hume issue. Michael, what had been very interesting too is that the previous night, the Taoiseach um, and jointly with the President of the European Parliament, Roberta Metsolo, they actually unveiled a beautiful bust um, of John Hume, which has been uh, created by an Irish artist, Liz O'Kane. I actually interviewed Liz online about her work on the, on the statue. That was very significant that this uh, bust, a bronze bust of John Hume, will now be on permanent display in the European Parliament. It's one of four, actually, and three other replicas. There's one in uh, the residence of the Ambassador's House in Washington, one, I believe, maybe, I think, in the Embassy in London, and one will be in Ivy House in Dublin. Um, And that was very significant. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the legacy of John Hume, not just, obviously, for the peace process in Northern Ireland, but he's 25 years as an MEP in the European Parliament and how much peace meant to him and how much Europe meant. And Europe was about unity as well. And Michal Martin echoed those sentiments as well when he was referring to John Hume yesterday. Mm. Uh, And he uh, quoted John Hume saying the basis of peace and stability in any society has to be the fullest respect for the human rights of all its people. Uh, When it comes to these negotiations, as said, Karen, uh, the European Union is united and fully united. uh, And on the other side, then, uh, there is uh, the British government. uh, But... Um, What happens if a solution is not reached? Because there seem to be particular... 
particular emphasis in the Taoiseach speech yesterday on the Good Friday Agreement, as much emphasis on the Good Friday Agreement as there was on the protocol? Well, obviously, one is intricately linked to the other uh, now, um, because what, um, you know, what we don't want to see is that any upset now of the Northern Ireland Protocol and any breaching of an international treaty, that that could have an impact on the Good Friday Agreement and on the peace in Northern Ireland. And they are absolutely linked. That's the problem that, you know, it's hard to see how um, upsetting or or disapplying aspects of the protocol, if that sparks a, a, a sort of uh, an effect that would lead to an impact on the good on the, the trade agreement, and then you have tensions escalating between Britain and and the rest of the EU and and Dublin, um, then that <clears throat> could have an impact on the stability in Northern Ireland, which is why I think any reference to the protocol is always embedded in the wider aspect of the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, it is very hard to see how, um, what, you know, the EU will will have to react if the British introduce a bill that leads to um, a breaching of the treaty, of the Brexit treaty, Mm -hmm. and a disapplication of aspects of the Northern Ireland Protocol. I think the EU is going to be forced to take action. Now, could that lead to a suspension of the trade and cooperation agreement? It It may start in a a less impactful way and it may escalate. But I've been talking to MEPs about potentially the implications if the British introduce this bill and, of course, if if it goes through the Houses of Parliament in the UK. And that now is certainly coming to the fore that the EU can't just stand by and do nothing. They are going to have to respond. And one of the responses could be a suspension of the trade and cooperation agreement or something that could lead up to that, but that they can't, they won't be able to just stand by and threaten the British and not do anything about it. And you're absolutely right about the, I mean, near unanimous support for the Irish line on this in terms of um, the protocol and the Good Friday Agreement that the Parliament and even when the President of of the Parliament was introducing the Taoiseach yesterday before he spoke, she said renegotiating the protocol on Northern Ireland is not an option. Mm. And she said that the European Parliament has reiterated its unwavering support on the protocol on several occasions. In fact, it's more than several. It's, mm. I think it's many occasions in this instance. Mm. And, you know, so the, it's not just the Commission, it's not just the Council, it's the Parliament also saying it just can't be negotiated. Now, this message seems to consistently be falling on deaf ears in London. Um, and so it's hard, you know, I don't know. And they, they, The British government seems to not believe that this is either, you know, going to happen or, um, or they don't care. Um, but maybe, maybe they're rethinking this. Maybe they've decided not to implement it. I don't know. It'll be very interesting to see what happens with this next week whether they are going to finally go through with this bill or whether they're going to rethink. But as I said earlier, they're under pressure from several sides, some who want a more lenient approach, but others who want a stronger approach. And of course, you know, you, we've heard Jeffrey Donaldson there. So there are strong communities in Northern Ireland and, and factors in Northern Ireland as well who want changes to that protocol. Indeed. Uh, but 
if those changes are implemented and if that means uh, that uh, the British government won't uh, agree to checks coming from Britain into Northern Ireland at ports in Northern Ireland uh, well then uh, it seems inevitable as it has for six years uh, or thereabouts uh, since uh, the people of the United Kingdom voted in favour of Brexit that there would have to be a hard border on the island of Ireland so that those checks could take place before goods come into the European Union. Well, I mean, this is the, the, the you know, this is what everybody has been trying. Certainly those who want to ensure that goods can flow smoothly without a hard border. I mean, the re-establishment of a hard border on the island of Ireland would be very dramatic. I remember as a young, <laughs> much younger reporter many years ago, um, I went to uh, work for the BBC in Northern Ireland as a cub reporter, radio reporter. And um, this was around 1990 to 91. And driving up from Dublin through um, very strongly militarised um, checkpoints on the border around Newry. And I remember, you know, like a British soldier putting, you know, those mirror things that you stick under the car to see if you have a bomb underneath it and and, and checking the car and, and checking who I was. And this was just a part, a part of daily life between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And then I learned um, to drive, I remember, in on the streets of Belfast and driving around um, with the, the, my teacher and there were tanks uh, around the streets of Belfast and there were soldiers, um, you know, carring down, doing exercises around the streets of Belfast and that was the norm. And I remember at that time I thought this will never change. The, mm-hmm. You know, the troubles in Northern Ireland seemed so embedded and, and yet, amazingly, we managed to get a peace agreement for Northern Ireland. But it is still a very sensitive one it is yeah. a delicate one, and that's mm. why doing something that will destabilise that is incredibly serious. Okay. Uh, it is beyond belief, uh, as uh, Michal Martin was saying, her children have been growing up in Northern Ireland or, or on this island or these islands over the last uh, 24 years and who have no recollection, uh, such as uh, the one uh, you've just outlined to, to us uh, there, which, as you say, was uh, everyday life. Uh, the Taoiseach did speak about Ukraine, Karen, and that they should uh, be given access uh, to uh, European Union membership, uh, but not just Ukraine, other states as well. He says Europe is too slow to expand. And then he was asked uh, about uh, the membership of NATO because Leo Bradker had been saying a little over a week ago uh, that Ireland might join a European army. Uh, and the Taoiseach went a bit further than that yesterday, I think. Yes, actually, this was, um, if I remember it uh, correctly now, this was in answer to a question that was put, I think, by the Irish Times journalist to the Taoiseach before actually he went into... Now, he might have Mm. also answered it in the Parliament, but I think it may have been uh, a response to a question that was put to him before he actually made his speech, and it was about defence issues. But um, if I remember correctly, I think he said something along the lines of, which struck me as unusual at the Mm. time, that we wouldn't need a referendum. A referendum wouldn't be needed in Ireland. Um, if we were to join NATO. I think that might have been the gist of it, yep. um, which I think was something that, well, I was surprised about it. Um, but, uh, and I think there may be some 
discussions now about whether that would be the case. I'm very surprised to hear that mm. actually, I think he might have said it could have been a policy issue or a policy decision right, yeah. and yeah. that it wouldn't have had to have been a referendum, which yeah. is something that I was surprised about. Yeah, and it now wouldn't I need a constitutional amendment. It might have actually yeah. come as a surprise to Leo Radker because he was speaking at the EPP conference uh, and he said that Ireland could join a European army but as a neutral country and that there would be a role for neutral countries in that army and that would require a referendum Uh, but to go this step further to joining NATO which uh, would be uh, an army proper I suppose uh, for want of a better way of putting that but involved in conflict I'd have thought that you'd need a referendum. Yes, I thought so too. Um, I think he may have said, and again, I may not Mm. be correct about this because I don't have the quotes in front of me, that um, joining an EU defence union would be a different matter. Now, these are all legal issues in terms of treaties and everything like that. But whatever the actual legal correctness of either one of those scenarios, there is no question that obviously the war on Ukraine has created tremendous changes in the defence landscape within the European Union, certainly. I mean, we are, we, you know, we have now um, the likes of Sweden going to join NATO and other countries as well, um, who would never have dreamed of doing that before. Mm. So um, Ireland will, it is probably, you know, a question that we're going to have to spend more time considering and answering about our defence capabilities um, and how how much our, what capabilities do we have to defend ourselves if we get attacked? Mm. Um, there's also there are also issues, of course, about it's not just military defence, Michael. Yep. It's it's defence against cyber attacks, which we know only too well how vulnerable we have been in terms of mm. the HSC attacks. So it's much broader than just military defence. Yeah, I have um, had the quote from the Irish Times here in front of me. What, what the Taoiseach uh, said was, we need to reflect on military non-alignment in Ireland and our military neutral- neutrality. We are not politically neutral, he said. And he went on to say, we don't need a referendum to join NATO. That's a policy decision of government. We would need a referendum to join a European Union defence pact if one was formally developed and declared because there are provisions in our constitution that would demand such a, a referendum. Uh, and the Irish Times reports uh, uh, that uh, the Leo Radker uh, is backing uh, the comments uh, that uh, the Taoiseach Michal Martin made yesterday. Uh, so uh, I think there'll be people looking for clarity on all of that. I think there will. And I think, you know, it, 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 these are conversations we are definitely... I think you may have mentioned about a citizens' assembly as mm. well, but again, I don't have the yeah. notes in front of me. But I mean, it, it, we have to have those wider conversations in this country. As you know, it's always been a tricky issue, the question about our neutrality and our status and all of that. But I think the war in Ukraine has really highlighted how vulnerable we could be if we came under attack. And mm. you, we've seen with NATO, Ukraine wasn't a member of NATO, therefore NATO wasn't going in to defend it. Um, NATO does not defend a country that is not a member of NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, these are conversations we have to have. They're very difficult and sensitive one because neutrality is an issue that matters for a lot of people, it but then we're not aligned yeah. and it's mm-hmm. all very fuzzy at times. So, um, certainly, and I think it probably will be something that um, uh, 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 certainly if there, there are few of us now in the club of non-NATO members, by the way, in the mm. EU, I think it might be reducing to three or four at this stage. And it is going to be, I think, probably an issue that's going to gain more momentum because there are certain political sectors as well within the EU-wide family who definitely want a stronger European Union, or sorry, a stronger uh, defence union. Mm-hmm. 
Um, okay. I'm going to have to slip off here, Michael. I know, I need to. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, somebody yeah. desperately waiting in the wings. Okay. Uh, my apologies for holding you so long, and thank you for all of your time. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's Karen Coleman, the editor with Europar Radio. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's uh, stay with uh, those comments uh, that the Taoiseach Michal Martin made about joining NATO. Wouldn't be necessary to hold a a referendum. Let's speak to Roger Cole of uh, the Peace and Neutrality Alliance. Good morning to you, Roger, and thank you indeed uh, for joining. Did did those comments come as a surprise to you? Um, No, not really. I I mean, I think it's... uh, You you probably know there's been a bit of a discussion on the issue of Irish neutrality. And as you probably know as well, there's been uh, public opinion polls on the issue of Irish neutrality, and they, they come out basically uh, somewhere between 66 and 71% of Irish people support Irish neutrality. Mm. So if you want to destroy Irish neutrality, not having a referendum is quite a good idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, were you surprised that a, nef- a referendum wouldn't be necessary? Well, technically, you see, there's a difference. Uh, if you join the, um, if you join an EU defence structure, mm. um, you actually are, as a sovereign state, transferring power over to the European Union. Again, which has been happening referendum after referendum, uh, where you take power that belongs to the Irish people and transfers it over there. We're the only country, you see, because we have Article Six in our constitution that clearly states that all power derives from the people. Mm. doesn't actually derive from Mr. Martin. He's just an elected representative. Well, Mr. Martin has a, a different opinion, uh, and this is Well, a, yes, a, a but the problem point. is, well, his opinion is, is in total contrast to the actual Constitution. Yeah, but he, he knows that that would end up yeah. in the High Court or the Supreme Court or, or God knows wherever if he, he was wrong. And I, I think, if I'm reading between the lines correctly, he's saying that if we were to join a, a European Defence Pact, uh, that that would need a constitutional amendment because of the Lisbon Treaty. But but NATO is a different kettle of fish. Well, he's correct, you see. It, 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 NATO is a partnership of sovereign states that agree to use nuclear weapons as a first-strike weapon. And in other words, they're all, all, everybody in NATO signs up to a military alliance that is in favour of using nuclear weapons and also willing to use nuclear weapons mm. as a first-strike weapon. We wouldn't be a very uh, neutral, neutral country if we were <laughs> sending out nuclear weapons, would we? Well, I mean, it's quite clear. I mean, you don't make a statement like that unless it's absolutely obvious that you are in favour of joining a nuclear armed military alliance. I mean, I wouldn't need. I mean, obviously, if he's in favour of that, he's obviously therefore in favour of perhaps building a submarine nuclear submarine base in Cork. That would go down very well with the people of Cork, I would imagine. Well, I take it then. Um, the question uh, of neutrality uh, is being answered in this. We're not a, a neutral country. Oh, Bihar. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I, I, I mean, Ireland became Ireland became when when the Irish state was established in uh, in nineteen nineteen, and uh, the British imperial state refused to accept that decision mm. and invaded our country and sent more troops in to crush us, black and tans and all the rest of it. And then there was a period of um, a truce and negotiation process, and in that process of negotiations. The Irish government representing the Irish people in of the Irish Republic in their negotiations with the British Empire uh, proposed to the British uh, that in return for Ireland agreeing uh, and every both of us both states both states agreeing that Ireland would be a permanently neutral state 
and that was their own word, a permanently mm. neutral state that uh, we would therefore ensure all we can to make certain that Ireland was never used as a base in, in any attack against uh, England, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, they have security concerns as well. And uh, so, I mean, people... Uh, so the first government of the Irish state was in favour of Irish neutrality, u- unanimously. Like, Michael Collins and De Valera might have disagreed about I know, but we've, treaty, ha- we've, but had, this argu- both, we've had this argument since... They both since, agreed. They yeah. both agreed. They both supported Irish neutrality. Sure, and but... In the, and in but, the public But is opinion, there a constitutional... Uh, requirement for Ireland to be neutral? I think the answer to that is no. Oh, yes, absolutely, yes. I mm. mean, uh, we... So, so, so in reality, in reality uh, the Taoiseach of the day, the government of the day, could join NATO. The Taoiseach is correct. Oh, I think he is correct, yes. Yeah. I mean, he could destroy neutrality. But the reason why he wants says it the way he did is he has total, clearly showing total contempt for the people who actually live in the country. Like, I mean, the, 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 it's not as if all public opinion polls are showing uh, by 60 to 60, 66 and 70 percent. And all mm-hmm. his own voters, by the way, <laughs> yeah. I mean, forget about people in general, his own voters, people who vote for Fianna Fáil, support Irish neutrality. Okay. He, might, he might not have remembered. There was a guy called Eamon de Valera. Did you ever hear him? I wonder. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he doesn't I, have I, a very I, good memory. I, I imagine De Valera and and Cosgrave and all the others mm-hmm. were in favour of Irish neutrality. Yeah, in a different it's world. A deeply rooted value, Roger. It, it's, I, it's, I'm out of time, Roger. I have to leave you there. Thank you, though. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, right, Roger Cole of the Peace and Neutrality Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Examiner reported on Tuesday uh, that 480 members of Angarda Siakana had been referred for psychiatric or psychological assessment or other mental health care over the course of uh, the past two years. Let's speak uh, to Brendan O'Connor, who's uh, the president of uh, the Garda Representative Association, the GRA. Uh, a very good morning to you, Brendan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. It's a tough job. Uh, at the best of times. Uh, I take it this is a symptom of the work that officers are carrying out. Yes, it's just, as you say, it's indicative of the toll that, the, that and the attrition rate that, that policing has on, on the workforce that are delivering it. So um, it's, it's, it comes as no surprise to us, our members, that the, 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 the work environment and the, and the incidents that our members deal with will take, a to- take their toll on members and we will see these figures. So it's... Um, I suppose it's interesting to see these figures and it's good to know that people are seeking help and that people are getting access to services. But again, and I noticed the report or whichever document was released, it does come with a caution tale that it's questionable how accurate it is and that the scale of the problem may actually be in excess of what has been reported. Mm, I I saw that in Ken Fox's report, all right. Uh, But uh, it's a a lot of people who are suffering stress and anxiety. Uh, Is it uh, the right approach that uh, your employer is taking to the type of work that you're doing? Uh, Should there be measures put in place uh, to help people cope better uh, with stressful situations? I think so. Understanding should be like we. The organisation has moved forward in the last number of years, and we do have access to counselling now from 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 a service provider, and there is an app available to members which gives them information. But I think it's it's the the issue really for a lot of members is that they can't get a break. It's the unrelenting nature of it, and I suppose 
most people in their lives and in their employment have, we all have stressful jobs, but I think most people can see deadlines coming in their particular, or there's a particular police to work, but police officers are subject to what's called burst stress. So you go from complete calm to uh, unbelievable chaos and trauma in an instant, and that is very difficult for the human condition and the human brain to deal with. So I think that's why the, the incidents that guards deal with are thankfully things that most citizens go through their life without ever being yeah. exposed to. But And sometimes what we can have is it, it just happens by random chance that maybe the same personnel or the same unit respond to a number of incidents of a, of, of a, of a similar nature or traumatic over a short space of time. And certainly we see that as having a huge impact. And then mm. with shortages of staff, uh, local supervisors, managers, I mean, the obvious thing to say to someone is take a break, take a few days off, you know, to heal or to, 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 to come to terms with what he's been exposed to. But it's just so busy out there. There's just so few members that go from call to call to call and it's very hard to get a break. And then you have the paperwork and the systems that are hard to deal with. So it, it, it's just a kind of perfect storm that combines and just people end up feeling overwhelmed and they can't deal with it. And people don't like to complain about issues like anxiety. Uh, there's a, a pride that a lot of us have uh, and feel that we should be better able to cope whether that's right or wrong. Uh, and uh, if you are suffering from these things, they can fester and then eventually explode. Uh, are there automatic uh, alarm bells to stop things from festering up and people, I mean, if a member of the force uh, is involved in uh, some uh, investigation involving a fatality or uh, if they're attacked personally or something like that, physically attacked personally. Is, is there something that kicks into gear and says, uh, look, we'd like to talk to you. How are you feeling? Do you need uh, to talk to somebody and that sort of thing? No, there, look, there are structures in place and they can be triggered, but there's no standard operating procedure, which is kind of terminology most police services would use. So it's very patchy and it depends on individual uh, it, it, it varies from region to region. So I, I'm stationed in Donegal there, so we had a couple of very, very high-profile serious tragedies involving multiple fatalities. So I was involved in maybe some those critical incident debriefing for some of those. But then, it, 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 as I say, it's kind of a very uh, ad hoc basis. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But really, the, 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 the backbone of the welfare and support service we have is actually peer support, and that's just ordinary colleagues looking out for each other who keep an eye on the, on the computer system, see what calls, just check in with a colleague and say, is everything okay? But I suppose mm. the fear is and the problem is as you, as you lose it, people sometimes don't feel feel that there's a stigma attached to it. So, you know, a lot of people say, yeah, I'm fine. It's hard to know what's going on inside and people. And I suppose, look, as we, policing by its nature, we, we kind of are expected to deal with everything. And I suppose people feel it's a sign of weakness that somehow... We think that, you know, we should be more resilient than the general population, but that's not the case. We're just ordinary people wearing a uniform, doing a different job. So I suppose the canteen culture is, is supportive and it's very healthy, help people cope. But then I suppose it comes with a, a little element of, you know, not bravado, but people thinking, oh, yeah, sure, we can deal with anything. But, you know, we're not. We're just fragile human beings like everyone else is doing, doing this a difficult job. Okay, well, obviously, it's a tough job uh, and one that keeps the rest of us uh, secure. Brendan, we leave it there for the moment, though. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Brendan O'Connor is uh, the president of the GRA, the Garda Representative Association. 
Students feeling uh, the stress of uh, the exams uh, will be able to avail of a support group uh, from nine o'clock this evening. Let's hear a little bit about what's involved in this. Fiona O'Malley is uh, the CEO of Turn To Me. Uh, Very good morning to you, Fiona, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. The exam stress group uh, will uh, be something that uh, will be open to students of all ages. Absolutely, yes. So as you say, it'll launch uh, this evening at 6pm and the exam stress support group will be open to students who are doing the Leaving Cert, students preparing for college entrance exams, students doing third level examinations and also parents of students who are doing these exams because we get a lot of reports from parents who don't know how to support their children during this period. They feel like they might be smothering them or else not doing enough. Mm. Um, And the support group will be 100% free for for students and for parents who are worried about their children during this exam season. And the support group will focus on exam anxiety, how to reduce exam stress, how to prepare for upcoming exams while ensuring that your mental health is also prioritised. Okay, and it's to calm down. Is it so that that stress or anxiety about doing the exam uh, doesn't impact on your performance? Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, stress people, when people think of stress, they think of really negative a small bit of stress can be a good thing because it can help you focus and act as a motivation tool but problems can occur when anxiety stress levels increase and they become overwhelming and some students feel like they're drowning in the pressure that they put on themselves or pressures from parents or from their peers Um, and it is really important to try your best and perform your best in exams but First of all, academic academic success isn't the most important thing. Your well-being is the most important thing. And secondly, these levels, heightened levels of anxiety can actually um, interfere with your performance in the exam. And and, and we don't uh, need that because obviously... When it, when the stress levels become that high, mm. they they interfere um, with your performance levels and they can also negatively affect your mental health. So this uh, free exam stress support group will teach students um, who are sitting these exams how to reduce those those levels of anxiety and those stress. Okay, uh, how long uh, will people have to commit to uh, this session? Uh, because I'm sure there's uh, some students who would be arguing, well, I think I'd be better spending the time uh, doing some last minute cramming. Yeah, that's a great point. So people can uh, log into the session. They can stay for half an hour. The sessions last a full hour and they'll be running every Thursday uh, at six o'clock for the next couple of weeks. But um, if people want to log in for half an hour, that's fine as well. Um, maybe half an hour is all they need, depending on their levels of stress and anxiety. OK, uh, and uh, I take it uh, that some people are <laughs> a lot more stressed than others uh, and that doesn't really reflect uh, their ability in terms of sitting the exams. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the common symptoms of stress coming up to exams are, are people feeling low, appetite loss, feeling overwhelmed by the pressure, not being able to sleep, not being able to focus. Sometimes in a more really extreme or severe case, people can report stress-related hair loss. Um, so we're just focusing on reducing those levels of anxiety mm. so, so the stress don't negatively impact students um, sure. on, on the day. And, and what advice do you give uh, to people? I, I mean, I, I take it uh, it's far wiser to eat than not eat, even if you haven't much of a, an appetite. Uh, but if you're not sleeping, that really can... 
uh, affect you no matter what you're doing the next day. Uh, what, what, what advice do you give to people who can't sleep, for example? Yeah, that's a great point. And when, when you haven't slept, that obviously affects your memory. And if you, you can't remember everything, then um, that or you know the the bulk of what you've you've crammed for, then it's um, you know that's a regressive um, uh, impact. But what we would advise people to do would be to um, try to unwind a little bit before they go to bed. Try to step away from any technology, any tablets. Stay away from your phone because that um, blue light can, you know, interfere with your sleeping. Um, it might be good to put a, a couple of drops of lavender oil on your pillow before you sleep at night. That can help you relax or even to do a bit of yoga or mindfulness or stretching before you go to bed. That can help you sleep as well. OK, some good tips. Uh, it's at six o'clock this evening. Uh, t- how, how do people join the session? So people can join for free for the three exam support group by going to turn to me, turn digit to me dot IE, creating a free account on the turn to me website and signing up for the support group. OK, very good. Thank you indeed, Fiona, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Fiona O'Malley, who's uh, the CEO of Turn To Me, uh, National Mental Health Charity. Uh, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us. Just a, a couple of comments coming to us really today. Seamus is, is in Dundalk and he says, Michael, are we really a neutral country at the moment? because of our, our ties with the EU. And I think there's uh, some mixed feelings on that, Seamus. Uh, but as to whether we were really ever neutral is another day's work. Uh, it seems as though uh, that is not the case. Uh, certainly not uh, something that would require a constitutional amendment, uh, according uh, to the Taoiseach, who said uh, that Ireland could join NATO without a, a referendum. Sean is in Drogheda. Sean says the majority of people in Ireland support the country's stance on neutrality. We are a small country and we are right not to get involved in wars with big empires. We need to stand against warmongers. Uh, thanks uh, for that, Sean. I don't know what pressure there is, if there is any pressure on Ireland uh, to join NATO or a European army, but uh, we're certainly hearing talk of it now uh, with uh, the Taunish a a little over a week ago talking about joining a European army and uh, the Taoiseach now talking uh, about joining NATO. Paddy Duffy in touch with us about this too, and he says, it's nice for once to hear an Irish Taoiseach stand up to the English. Uh, This is uh, to do with the protocol, rather. He says, it's not 1847 where the Irish had to take English crap although the same mindset still exists in London if we go back to 2018 when the current Home Secretary Patel suggested starving the Irish if we didn't submit to their wishes thanks for that Paddy I have to say that I was surprised by the comments uh, that the Taoiseach made to the Irish Times uh, saying that a referendum wouldn't be required uh, for us uh, to join NATO. Uh, As I say, those comments came on the back of what the Taunish Leo Bradker had said about joining an EU army. And Leo Bradker said uh, that that would require a referendum, but he felt that if needed, he could win that referendum. Thursday morning. I beg your pardon. Um, we spoke to the Minister for European Affairs, uh, Thomas Byrne, uh, just about a week ago about this issue. I don't think that's likely to happen anytime soon. Um, uh, he, he may have his own views on that. Um, the last European referendum we had was when Fine uh, Labour were in government and it had to be led by Michal Martin from opposition at the time uh, to make sure it was successful to, to ensure that our economy could recover from the crisis. So. Um, it, that would be I haven't even thought of that but that would be a very difficult referendum and I'm not sure uh, why we would need to do that at the moment it's not causing us any problems at the moment we have a lot of work to do to upgrade our own defence forces to do the work of 
protecting the state, but also to do the work that they do uh, with peacekeeping. The Taoiseach was in Lebanon at the weekend as well, before the European summit. And, you know, I know everybody in this country is proud of um, all of the people that have served in the Lebanon as, as a, from a peacekeeping country. And indeed, one of the things that struck uh, the people who were on that delegation to Lebanon was that in some cases, you have the third generation of a family who were serving over there in Lebanon. Uh, uh, in the Irish Army under under UN auspices, and we're very proud of that. And I think that's where I think we need to focus our energies at this particular time. Mm. Uh, and and it would be unpopular as things stand. Sixty four percent of uh, the population, according to the last poll on this in the Irish Times, were uh, opposed to uh, giving up neutrality or, or neutral position. Uh, and Fianna Fáil would oppose joining NATO, would it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, oppose joining NATO. And indeed, Minister Byrne telling us uh, a little over a, a week ago that he, he wouldn't envisage a referendum to allow us uh, to join the European Army, which uh, Leo Radker was talking about, and the Taoiseach yesterday saying we wouldn't need a referendum to join NATO. He didn't say we're joining NATO, but there is uh, some suspicion that that maybe was what was being said between the lines. Anyway, if you'd like to talk to us about that or if you have any thoughts on that, I don't know if you fall into the category uh, that are uh, opposed to, to giving up our neutrality. That's 64% according to that latest poll. Or if uh, you feel otherwise, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the country is awash with cocaine, it would seem, with a report uh, this week from the Health Research Bureau indicating uh, that as we got over the last crash in 2011 and people's income started to rise, so did uh, the popularity of cocaine, which seems to be selling uh, between 70 and 100 euro for a, a gram of cocaine. Uh, this is a very expensive habit, especially if it becomes a habit and those debts can mount as our next guest knows only too well. Jackie McKenna is uh, the project coordinator coordinator with the Family Addiction Support Network. And a very good morning to you, Jackie, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. And you've dealt with people who've been highly addicted to cocaine and run up an awful lot of debt as a result of their habit over the years. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Um, Michael, we we work with family members who are impacted by a loved one's substance misuse, so we work and work directly with people who um, have drug addiction. So uh, what we are seeing is uh, family members coming in who are impacted, as I said, by that behaviour and that has, uh, by their uh, loved one running up Drug debts, yes, um, certainly intimidation, drug debt intimidation is on the increase. And are you seeing those numbers grow? Because the Health Research Bureau has said that in 2011, 254 people needed help for their cocaine habit. And that increased from 254 to 688 in 2019. Are you seeing uh, increases in the numbers coming to you in line with those increases? Um, yeah, well, we're not really surprised um, uh, that it is increasing because um, that's why this organisation began in the first place as far back as 2002. And even in 2007, uh, Fasten took part in a, a study by the um, National Advisory Committee on Drugs. 
and the very same problems that was um, that was in 2009, and the very same problems that was identified then actually was repeated in the research that we developed in 2019. So even though the government was well aware of the increase in numbers and the problems that's associated with it, it still is rife today more than ever. And I, I see that there was 171% of an increase between 2011 and 2019. But like that, it is no surprise. And because cocaine, I suppose, is socially acceptable with drugs drug use there's still a stigma out there in the community and um people uh, feel that they're being judged because they're using drugs or because families are judged because they're guilty by association of a drug user but with cocaine it seems to be a lot more socially acceptable and i i think that that's a lot to do with the uh, affluent society that's using it as well. Um, because it's expensive? Because it's expensive and because um, it's used by professionals, it's used right across uh, right across the board. It's not just for uh, disadvantaged communities or anything else. Um, uh, so um, I think with that, you were saying about €100 Euro per gram. Um, uh the people people using it think that it's worth the money because it gives them energy and it gives them confidence and it gives them a buzz and they don't see that there is any uh, long term or problems associated with it now most people don't go on to uh, develop problems but uh, some do Um an awful lot of it that we see is the problems associated with their behaviour in the home, uh, the financial uh, ruin of people. Um, uh, it's uh, mixing alcohol and cocaine then is a real concern, as that then can lead on to um, cause greater physical harm. Mm. Um, you know, um, it's seen. I suppose taking cocaine and cannabis is seen the same as taking drink. It's mm. become so socially acceptable. Is, is, is the war on drugs or, or the war on cocaine uh, uh, lost? Uh, is it like fighting a, a losing battle? If so many people are, are using cocaine, uh, is there much point to trying to criminalise people for using it? Well, I think that we shouldn't be looking at it as a war on drugs. I think that we should accept that this is a normal culture that um, our children are grown up in. When I was grown up, it was alcohol and cigarettes, and I knew the consequences of being involved in those. It didn't stop me trying them, but I knew that there was um, uh, consequences. Most of us don't realise that our children, our grandchildren, are all growing up in what has now become the normal drug culture. Mm. So we really shouldn't be stigmatising people and blaming and pointing the finger. What the government really needs to do is to start putting in services at community level, where they are needed, so as when and if 
problems arise that people have timely access to treatment and support and support for family members because family members are the key pin to a successful rehabilitation. Is it, are you saying, Jackie, sorry, Jackie, cut the credit, but is it that most people won't need that rehabilitation, that they do the odd line of coke every now and again, and they do actually use it socially, so they don't have problems? Uh, Yes, some people can do that, but you cannot line up 10 people against the wall, Michael, and pick out you you and you are going to go on and have addiction problems, but you you and you won't, Mm. and you and you will run into financial ruin. I suppose it's like that with alcohol, though, isn't it? Absolutely, and look at alcohol, and it's legalised, and it's the biggest drug, and if it was invented today, it would be a class A drug like heroin Mm. or cocaine. So... Why would we make the same mistake again of legalising drugs? And if you look at the the figures out there for any for um, for uh, breakups of families, for mm. violence, for everything, uh, you liken that with illegal drugs. Mm. It's the very same for alcohol. But alcohol has been immersed in our culture for so long. Mm. But one good thing that I've seen from the report is that, and that gives me hope, is that um, the number of smokers is down for the first time ever. And that shows me that we need the same drive from the government to get all of the departments to turn around the the, um, drug revolution the same way as they did the smoking revolution. Mm. And that is by everybody working on a health-led approach. And that is what I think that the government needs to focus on now and start investing in treatment and supports within the community because it's not Mm. if people need uh, treatment in the future, it is when, because out of 20 people, as I said, maybe three, four people who go on to um, have big problems. Is it, is it possible to compare that to alcohol? If three out of 20 people using cocaine went on to have problems, would it be the same number for uh, 20 people using alcohol? Um, I'm not really sure, Michael. Mm. I'm not really sure, but I do know the effects that alcohol has on the family. And I do know the effects that uh, drugs, illegal drug use has on the family. But what is really scary these days, when my children was growing up, there wasn't uh, the organised crime where mm. we lived. But now, organised crime is everywhere. Mm. And that is what people are doing when they are using cannabis or uh, cocaine or anything else. They are actually funding organised crime to do the heinous things that they can do, like that includes murder, intimidation, violence, you name it. Mm. So people need to realise that when they're doing this. And organised crime is gripping a fear across communities all over Ireland. Let it be a little village in a rural area or a big estate in a big urban place. People have had to sell farms of land to pay drug debt intimidation. Mm. 
grannies are being asked for sexual favours to pay off their grandchildren's um, drug debts. People have to leave their homes because they're pipe-bombed or burned or people are intimidated on the street. You know, mm. it's, it's gone crazy. And if people, it's gone crazy, yeah. Mm. People don't think that this is in their community or that they haven't got a problem with their family. They may not have a problem at this moment in time with their family, but each of us is rearing children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and it is going to affect our communities, mm. our communities. And if that fear is not broken down within within the communities, we will not have the caring community that we've always had that delivered on the COVID strategy. Mm. Where does cocaine come from, though? Does it come from Colombia or somewhere like that? Because I, I don't think you get cocaine grow houses like you do with cannabis. Uh, uh, and I, what I mean by that is that one of the arguments is is that it's hard to control cannabis in this country uh, because people are, are growing it themselves or they're growing it in houses. It's not being imported to the country, so it, it's hard to monitor. And uh, cocaine seems to be a, a different uh, kettle of fish altogether but it seems to be as widespread if not even more widespread the country seems to be awash with cocaine and if it is illegal how is it getting into the country and how does it uh, go from person to person unpoliced well uh, you know it is very very difficult um, I don't know how it's getting into the country that's the, the law enforcement end of it but I know that uh, the use of mobile phones and snapchat um, makes it so hard for the uh, uh, the guards and all the rest to, to try and get dealers. Dealers have Snapchat accounts and fake names. And all you have to do is put in the dealer's name into your Snapchat and text them to meet up. They can do home deliveries at an extra cost and all the rest. So it's very anonymous. So, you know, yes, it is very, very hard to catch people. So we need to work as a community, along with the Gardaí, along with the government, in trying to put in some sort of support and to crack down uh, big time on, on uh, drug seizures and all the rest. Yep. Oh, are you there, Jackie? Yeah, can you oh, I, I can, yeah. I'm sorry, I thought the line had dropped out. I, I was going to ask you about Canada, actually. I, I don't know if you've seen what they're doing in Canada. It's a, a three-year trial, but they're decriminalising the use of cocaine and some other drugs uh, for people. Uh, things like uh, ecstasy and MDMA, cocaine, opioids. Uh, for possession of less than two and a half grams, uh, if you're found in possession, uh, you won't be arrested. You won't be charged and you won't have the drugs taken off you. You'll be, uh, It'll be irrelevant, I suppose. Uh, but you will be offered uh, services, health and social services, uh, um, which you may or may not avail of. But you can go about your business and continue uh, to hold on to your drugs. What do you make of that? Do you think that's a, a, a good idea or a bad idea? Yeah, we actually uh, did a, a survey with family members uh, around decriminalisation, and yes, there were. We fed in. It was actually a national survey that was taken part, and we did a focus group on it. And yeah, it was overwhelmingly in favour of decriminalising it, simply because um, most people, and I think that report says it as well. Most people that use drugs. 
uh, is between 15 and 24. And um, we all do strange and stupid things when we're teenagers and younger. Mm. And uh, this can have an impact on us for the rest of our lives if it's a criminal offence that we have on in our employment, uh, on travel, on every part of our lives. So, yes, I think it's a more humane way of taking the criminality out of it, but also putting in, recognising um, recognizing addiction and taking the stigma out of it and putting in a more holistic, humanistic approach mm. to uh, drugs and drug use. Right, uh, but if you extend that logic, uh, then you would make the argument, I think, for legalising it, because uh, you do a, a number of things. You'd bring the cost uh, €100 Euro a gram down to, I don't know, 15 or 20 because I'm sure most of that is gobbled up by the gangsters. You'd get rid of the gangsters because they'd uh, have nothing to sell. Uh, you'd uh, stop the problems uh, with uh, poisons uh, that are put in- into these drugs uh, to pad them out uh, and you'd be providing people with clean drugs uh, and so on uh, and you wouldn't have that level of criminality uh, and all of the problems that go with it, as you say, that ranges from murder to grandmother's and ask for sexual favours. Yeah, well, I don't agree with that, Michael, because um, if you look at prohibition, that has never worked. There's always going to be a black market for something if it's going to be banned or if it's going to be wherever, wherever. If it's legalised, um, you can't... I think rather than legalising it, if it was regulated and a harm reduction model... Um, implemented across the country on education and uh, safer drug use until the person makes up their mind to give it up if they want to give it up. And I think I had a big problem with this um, when I started thinking about this years ago and uh, all I wanted was my child not to be using drugs. But that's not the reality of it. Um, And when I thought about it, I really was challenged on it. What I really wanted for my child would be to stay safe until such time that they came to their senses, uh, in my mind, that they came to their senses and decided not to use drugs anymore. Okay. Jackie, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for talking to us uh, this morning. That's uh, Jackie McKenna, Project Coordinator with uh, the Family Addiction Support Network. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, in 13 years from now, you won't be able to buy a petrol car or a diesel car. Well, not if uh, the Fine Gael MEPs have uh, their way. Let's uh, speak uh, to Colin Markey, Fine Gael MEP, and uh, a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you're looking for the European Union to be fully electric with cars and vans by 2035. Well, certainly any purchase of new cars in 2035, which is 13 years away, should be all electric cars. That's our sense of it. Obviously, the cars that are out there today or even cars that you buy in five or six years' time that are still diesel or petrol cars, you can still continue to drive them. But there has to come a point at some stage when you draw a line and say, we'll, have no, we'll only produce electric cars, that fossil fuel cars are, 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 are not being produced anymore. And I suppose... One thing we'd say in relation to it, like if you look at other sectors, be it aviation or maritime or even lorries, heavy goods vehicles, it's a harder challenge to, let's say, electrify them for the, the need for, if you like, a dense heavy fuel, if you like. Mm. 
Hmm. But for cars, it's achievable. So if it's achievable, we should just get on with it. Like. Right. So is it achievable? I know you said it is, uh, but is the infrastructure in place? Are the cars uh, of uh, the right spec? Is the technology there to allow you to drive from uh, Dublin to Cork or from Cork uh, to Paris, uh, for that matter? Well, like we're now in 2022 and this is 20, we're talking about 2035. So with the progress that there has been over the last, let's say, decade, there's no reason why that technology can't be developed in the next decade or more. And it is actually, I was talking to someone this morning about a Dutch company who are actually developing, if you like, a solar car where 90% of the energy is generated for solar panels on the car. So these are all obviously futuristic things, but Mm. we have to, like, the the cars are currently doing 300, 350 kilometres. We have to put our charging points in place. We have to get a renewable source of electricity in place as well. There's no point in Mm. generating electricity from fossil fuels and then putting the electricity into the car. So there is a whole, like, if you like, supply chain, both of the, the vehicles, but also of the energy that we have to get right. But, like, 13 years is a long time. And mm. we, it is a long time, and you'd imagine it would all be in place, but there is a, a lot at the same time, uh, and it's one thing setting a, a target, but having that in stone is a, a different thing. I mean, if uh, the cars don't have uh, the capacity to do long journeys without charging, uh, that's a, a problem. You need the charging units, as you say, in place, but you also need quick charging, don't you? Yeah, you need quick charging, and you need... Like the technology in batteries is anticipated to improve, so those those distances should should increase. The 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 rate of time to to, to charge should increase, and, and there will be other options as well. As it's not just necessarily like obviously we're, we're looking at electric, but like I suppose it's to get away ultimately from the the diesel petrol combustion engines, and there may be other scenarios that may come down the road as well, but. Like the reality is that we there's no reason why we shouldn't set that as a target and that have that as our ambition to make that happen. Right. And like mm. it's not as if everyone that's out there with a diesel car suddenly their diesel car will be obsolete. Those cars will still be will still operate and those cars will even will still be sold up until like I know here like it's all right talking about Europe twenty thirty five, like even at a national level we've an ambition to have electric, all electric by twenty thirty. So like at European level, we're actually setting a standard that, that has been trumped by the standard at home. So, mm-hmm. like, I, this is, if, if you don't have the ambition, it'll never happen. Okay, but there is some resistance to this. Yeah, we, we well, like, if you consider, like, we, the Fine Gael group and the EPP, we actually went against our own group because they only wanted 90% on this. And I suppose that was coming essentially, to call it out, it's coming from if you like, the German car industry or even the French car industry as well, but primarily the German car industry, who want, who like the traditional combustion engines, be it BMW or Volkswagen or anyone like that, who would have uh, wanted to, to, if you like, in some way protect the industry, the car manufacturing industry on the continent. And I think that's where the main drive to, to look for lower limits. They were looking for 90% rather than 100%. Like in the point being, it's if if you're at ninety percent or one hundred percent, it's practically the same thing. Only you're leaving the door open for for the combustion engine and for fossil fuels. Like it's almost like you know, give us ten percent, and we, we, like who's going to produce that ten percent? So mm. I think it's either, either it's gone or it's not. And uh, we felt we should take a stand on this. As I said earlier, like aviation, flying planes, and uh, powering boats and all that is will be much harder to solve, but. To electrify cars, electrify light vehicles like vans and cars, 
and to get those mileages up is more than achievable and we, we sh- if, if we don't go for that like if we don't mm. address that sort of an issue how are we ever going to tackle the bigger challenges? Okay, but, 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 but why is there resistance from the car industry uh, that's reflected in the views of your political grouping uh, in the EPP? Is it that you'd be talking about inferior vehicles or, or, or what is it? Because I take it that the industry would be quite happy to go 100% electric because everybody would have to go 100% electric. There'd be no question of competition or anything like that. But it must be that people don't want the cars or they're worried that people won't want the cars because they'll see them as being inferior? I don't think it is necessarily. I think when you've, a, when you've a, let's say, a, a business model that's based around a combustion engine car and the, the, the changes in technology, like you're talking about no gearboxes, you're talking about no uh, combustion engines, the whole, it's a, it's a redesign of a, of a type of car and a lot of what, let's say, some of the big brands would represent mm. would be a would now be obsolete and their technologies would now be obsolete. So their place in the market mightn't be as relevant as it once was. So I think that's... And then you, you take that another step further and you talk about, let's say, the industry and the jobs and the employment that that is. And that's... Like, we'd have the same issue here, perhaps, in Ireland, in other sectors. Mm. You have to be conscious of what they'd call a just transition. And I suppose that's where the nervousness is at, that that jobs and jobs may be lost or the, the industry models may be different. But I think we have to recognise that if we are to change, mm. we have to be willing to take that. And and I suppose that's uh, the, the reason for the question. I imagine that if the first part of your argument is correct, that 13 years is a long time for this technology to develop, and it certainly would seem to, uh, quite a, a lot happens in a, a short time uh, when it comes to developing technology. Uh, there's no reason for the car industry to have those concerns because everything should be up to spec uh, and they should be able to uh, take that transition themselves. Yeah, I think that's that's what, what you'd like to see happen. But, mm. probably but they obviously uh, feel that that's I, not going to be the case. I wouldn't think that's it as much. I think the, the, the scenario is that the design of the vehicle will be so much different that their market, their place in the market won't be as relevant, that other designs, electric engines, electric motors, well, they, that's not their proficiency, if you like. And as a result, not, that's not what they're set up to do. And there'll be, like, if you take Tesla as a, as a, as a model that's, that's coming through, like, it's a, it's a completely different design of vehicle. And then other traditional designs or, or names, brands might, might, mm. might slip down the pecking order. And I think it is about certainly looking at the industry perspective. All the suggestion is that the technology will develop and that if we can get the batteries to a percentage improvement on the batteries and a percentage improvement on the, on the charging times, that this can be realistic in the future. And at the end of the day, it's only that the cars that are sold in 2035 are to that specification. All the cars that are sold in the meantime will, can still be on the road. And like fossil fuels may in other ways become more challenging anyway. So you would hope that if you look at the Irish government's ambition, like they're talking about a, almost a million electric cars on the road by 2030. Mm. And if you get that many cars on, you're driving down the price of of the electric car, you're driving down the, the, the if you like, the the energy costs associated with two and the logistics because you have to provide for all of those. So I think if we don't have that level of ambition, it'll never happen. And it's easier, I'll go back to the point is, to me, the electric cars is low-hanging fruit in terms of the environmental challenges that we have. Okay. And if we don't, if we don't take that one on, then how are we going to take on the more 
difficult ones down the road. Okay. Uh, just uh, before you leave us, have you been hearing any reaction uh, to uh, the Taoiseach's comments uh, about joining NATO, saying uh, that it's probably a policy issue that could be solved through a citizens' assembly and wouldn't require a, a referendum? Well, I certainly think they, they, there's there's a conversation to be had about a, whether or not we should join NATO or whether we, they, in relation to our own neutrality. I think it certainly has to start. I think a citizens' assembly is a good vehicle to use in terms of, let's say, having that conversation. Now, whether I'm not going to get into, I think that's more a for, for a legal question in terms of whether or not it it requires a, a referendum or not. But certainly. It's probably a conversation we have, and I wouldn't assume what way that conversation would go. I think uh, people are, were always very proud of our neutrality in Ireland, and at the same time, people recognise that you can't stand idly by when, when tyrants are uh, causing such devastation. Okay. But uh, my own perspective is that one thing that Ireland could do a lot on in the in the months and years ahead is the whole area of cyber security. And cyber security, if you like, is is being active in terms of the, uh, the future security of Europe and Ireland. Indeed. But it's not necessarily the same level of military capability as boots on the gowns and bombs. Mm, but and, N- and, NATO and, is, I think. NATO would be a different vehicle. Yeah, and that, and that's think, what the T-shirt was talking about. But the point is, the Citizens' Assembly, not join NATO, have the mm. conversation and let's have the considered conversation on whether it be, I, I, like, mm. it's NATO or is it an EU Okay, response? well, well, it, it, it may be a, a legal question technically, but I, I think some people would like to be asked the question whether it's legally yeah. uh, required or not. Uh, but thank oh, you. And indeed. I think yeah. that's, the, the Citizens' mm. Assembly would be part of that, but definitely I'd agree 100% that there has to be a public consultation there has to be public buy-in to any decision that would be made. Okay, thank you indeed, Fine Gael, MEP Colin Markey. Now, Paul was in touch with us and he says uh, that as somebody who has served in the army, uh, he and members of his family have uh, been members of the army, he doesn't think it's right for two politicians or two political parties to dictate to the rest of us what is going to happen in regard to neutrality. The issue uh, of neutrality should be decided by the people of this country and everyone should be able to have their say on it. It can't be decided by the politicians. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for your call to the programme today. Paul, uh, somebody else, uh, Mary in Trim, saying, is there any way that we can get the Taoiseach back before we're at war with England, the North and Russia with all of the threats he's carrying out? Conscription could be next on the cards. Betty says, anyone who uses drugs for recreational purposes should be attending St. Isis Hospital because they're mad people. If you can't enjoy life without drugs, well, God help you, says Betty. And Margaret says, what about the children in the mines in the Congo slaving to get lithium out for electric vehicles. I've not heard one word from any politician in regard to that. It's not happening here, so it seems to be okay for them. It's not for me, says Margaret. Well, thank you indeed for sharing that with us. Michael Reed on LMFM. A new retail sustainability initiative is uh, being launched today by Sustainable Irish Retail Action in conjunction with Retail Excellence and Champion Green. Uh, as part of uh, this initiative uh, to support Irish business to take practical steps to become more sustainable, uh, there's a guide for those businesses, but there's also a point being made about reusable coffee cups 
and single-use coffee cups uh, and indeed uh, how 20 cent is being proposed as a levy uh, on single-use cups. Let's speak uh, to Duncan Graham, Managing Director with Retail Excellence and a very good morning to you, Duncan, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you're very much opposed to this, it would seem. No, look, we're not opposed to it. Um, in fact, as you say, we, you know, we've launched this, this sustainability initiative uh, today, um, you know, aimed at providing a guide for, for retailers, and that's been very well received. I and mean, 80% of retailers uh, are saying to us that it's important their business does become more sustainable, and we're all on that journey. I, I guess, look, the, the reality is that we just want to make sure that this is being properly thought through and that there aren't some unintended consequences. If you look at what's actually happening here, is uh, the government is proposing a 20 cent levy on the price of uh, disposable coffee cups, single-use mm. coffee cups. And, but the reality of it is that uh, levy uh, is is open-ended up to a euro. So, you know, it could be 20 cents uh, when this law comes in. In uh, It could be 50 cents six months later. It could be a year, uh, in a year's time, it could be a euro that we're paying extra. Mm. And that comes on, a, comes on at a time when, you know, businesses already, have already seen a massive spike in terms of costs. Uh, you know, cost of doing business has, has gone through the roof over the last uh, few, few months, as we all know. Um, and, you know, it really means that some, particularly the smaller independent uh, coffee shops around the country, it started to put their business model uh, in an p- extremely precarious place. And the idea is that you buy your cup of coffee uh, and you don't throw away the cup uh, because you've yeah. paid for the cup. So you bring it home and you wash it and you use it the next time. The problem you have, or the point you're making, at least in relation to it, is that when you wash the cup, uh, you're using a lot of water, a lot more water than what would otherwise be the case. Uh, and indeed, the cups have to be produced and because they're plastic uh, that leads to environmental problems in itself. Exactly. Exactly. And the fact that uh, there's a study done in Denmark actually that said that uh, by just by uh, using um, keep as we call them keep cups and there's nothing wrong with keep cups you know we're, we're in favor of them being used but by using keep cups the reality is that we'll create four times more water waste and add three times more carbon than if we have a mixed situation where we're using um, you know recyclable uh, single-use coffee cups as well at the end of the day you know we're talking about you know when you go back to plastic bag mm. levy the reality was that with plastic bags we eliminated plastic um, and we would very often replace those plastics with reusable situations but also with paper and we're saying here that in reality most of our pay, uh, most of these single-use cups are predominantly paper and therefore really what we should be looking at is a much more of a recycling situation and building on uh, a recycling credentials as well as the whole reuse uh, element which is what this bill allows for okay but don't they end up in the landfill anyway yes they do and the problem we've got is uh, you know at least with with paper cups, uh, particularly compostable paper cups, they're biodegradable. Um, as we all know, uh, if, if we, the intent, unintended consequence of this bill is that potentially we end up with a lot more uh, cheaper plastic cups that will end up in landfill. And of course, those plastic cups are far less biodegradable in the long run. So, okay. so even if they do end up in landfill, you're saying they'll degrade quicker uh, than the plastic Absolutely. ones. Absolutely. Uh, and some people might go to the bother of recycling or composting them. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And that's what we want to see. You know, we always talk around uh, this green agenda as being you know, reduce, reuse and recycle. Yes, we understand about the reduction. The reuse, absolutely, the keep cup is is that element, but it Mm. still does have its challenges in terms of, as we said, the amount of water it's generated and all that sort of thing. The reality is this bill is not allowing 
for recycling. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, most people this morning, if you're, if you're listening from work or you're listening from home, you know, you, you've probably gone out this morning, bought your cup of, cup of coffee on your way into work. If we simply said, let's invest in uh, recycling boxes in all our workplaces for paper cups and recycle these items properly, isn't that a far better or, or a just as good an alternative as, as lumping on another 20 cents on the price of a coffee at a time when really we can't afford it? And okay. that's the sort of route that we want to go down. And do you think uh, that retailers are... are actively seeking ways of becoming more sustainable. You said 80% want to be more sustainable, but uh, is that something that they're uh, making a concerted effort themselves to achieve? Yeah, look, this is, this is what the guide has been all about. And we've spent the last year working with two ladies who've set up uh, this CIRA, this Sustainable Irish Retail. And, and the first thing that they did was actually go out and survey 230 retailers. And they all came back and said that sustainable being sustainable and and adopting sustainable business practice was important to their business as i say 80 percent said that's what they wanted to do and and that was primarily because customers were demanding that customers are turning around now and saying we want to buy more sustainable products we want to buy them in a more sustainable way and this guide simply what, what we found was you know retailers wanted to do it the larger ones would probably put big teams of you know sustainability people to to, to make their the business move in that direction the smaller independent retailers around the country, many of whom are probably listening today, were scratching their heads going, I'd love to do it, but I'm just not sure how. And that's why the sustainable uh, guide, this, this guide to sustainable retailing, has been produced. And it's full of, there's about 20 different case studies in the guide um, of simply just stuff that people have done, ranging from uh, businesses like Vodafone and Apple Green through to you know, smaller businesses like Reusey and there's a, there's a small uh, mm. Jiminy Toys and things like that. So it, it, it's a wide, wide variety of businesses that have contributed uh, and an extremely useful guide for people. And that's the mm-hmm. sort of steps that we want to, to, to move forward with. And just retail. to mention quickly, it's available free to anybody who is interested at this stage on retailexcellence.ie. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. Duncan, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Duncan Graham is uh, the Managing Director with Retail Excellence Ireland. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.